that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. So we will finish our study of the verse of the book of 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, again beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Good to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter to Timothy that has instructed us so well this past year. Lord, we pray that you would continue to instruct us this morning. Lord, especially all the more in light of the culture we live in that is so possessed by materialism and greed. That you would give us clarity and deepen our convictions with how... regarding how we should handle money and the resources that you've richly blessed us with. Lord, help us not only to understand what your word says, but give us discernment and clarity to know how you would like each of us to respond. Change our thinking to be in line with your word. Lord, change our affections that we would love what you love and hate what you hate and Take warning for the things that we should be concerned about. Lord, we are often foolish. And so we need your help. Give us insight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you know, uh, I actually grew up in Riverton, Wyoming. Smack dab in the middle of the state. And uh, Riverton is named because uh, it is nestled beside the Little Bighorn River that flows right through the town. Um, Many people have heard, maybe not of the Bighorn River, but they've heard of the Battle of Little Bighorn. That was where, of course, General George Custer was massacred by the Sioux Indians. Uh, A lesser known event connected to that battle uh, regarded uh, a capital Sorry, Captain Grant Marsh. Uh, He was in charge of the Far West, which was a steamboat that was charged to bring supplies to Custer's army. And when he had heard about the uh, battle, uh, he recognized he was going to have to take uh, some of the injured men away from the battlefield. That boat that he was carrying, the steamboat, the Far West, uh, along with supplies, also had with it about a half a million uh, dollars worth of gold bullion. And so 
when all these injured men were brought to Captain Marsh, he recognized he was going to have to leave um, the, the gold in order to take the injured men to safety. And so they buried about half a million dollars worth of gold bars on the shores of the Little Bighorn River in order to preserve the lives of these men. And to this day, that gold is yet to be found. Again, in order to preserve lives, all that wealth needed to be left behind. And truth be told, the story of all of our lives really is all the wealth, all the possessions we will ever gain will have to be left behind. Because each of us someday is going to be called to cross death's river. And we will have to leave all that we own behind us. And so with that in mind, how should we live? Especially those of us who have been richly blessed with material wealth and possessions. It's helpful to keep in mind that if your household income is more than $50,000 a year, so not just one income, but in total, if your household income is $50,000 a year, you are in the top 10% of the wealthiest families in the world. And that's not to say regarding history how wealthy you are. Well, I'd say that's top one out of ten people. And that, I would guess, is, would probably be the majority of our families. Beyond the majority, most of our families. And I'd say even if you're on welfare you would be considered one of the wealthiest people because the government in America has agreed to pay for all of your needs. And so there's a good reason why there are thousands of people flooding into our country every year. It's not because our cooking is great. It's because our government provides. We're a wealthy people. And the focus of this passage is on Wealth. In fact, you'll notice that the word rich comes up three times in two verses. And then, of course, you have the word treasure in verse 19. Even the exhortation that's given to Timothy in verse 20 is to guard the deposit entrusted to him. Again, a, a figure of speech regarding treasure builds off this treasure thing. And so, clearly the theme is, these are words to the wealthy. And I think that's how we would define ourselves in our culture. Uh, the, the passage really breaks down into two sections. You have uh, words to the wealthy, four commands that are given. To be humble, to hope in God, to do good, and to be generous. Four brief commands. And then he gives two commands to Timothy, namely guard the word and avoid false teaching. Let's look, first of all, at the four commands that are given to the rich. He begins with the command to be humble. Verse 17, you'll notice, says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So this charge that Timothy is directed to give is towards the rich. So this tells us at least there were rich 
people in the church at Ephesus, or else there'd be no reason to give this command. And this is significant because it shows us that becoming a Christian does not mean that you lose whatever resources you once had. Becoming a Christian does not level everyone's socioeconomic status. It doesn't change one's economic status. And the church, since its beginning, has always had people who were rich and some that were poor. People from every walks of life. So salvation does put us all on the same spiritual level because all of our righteousness is found in Christ alone. So it's equal. But it doesn't put us on different economic levels. That doesn't change when we become a Christian. And another thing that's significant is apparently there were quite a few rich people in the church of Ephesus because they warrant special attention. Only a few groups in this letter get special attention, right? The false teachers, obviously. Widows are given quite a bit of instruction. Slaves. You could include deacons and elders, but really that's just qualifications that are given to them. But he goes out of his way to tell Timothy, make sure you instruct the rich, which would lead us to believe there's more than just a few rich people in the church. And notice also how Paul qualifies the rich. The rich in this present age. Noon Ioni is the Greek. Literally, the now eon. The present age. Right? In contrast to the rich in the age to come. Right? There are two different ages in world history. You have the age since Adam, this present age, that which is, as Hobbes described, nasty, brutish, and short. And then you have the age to come when Christ will reign upon the earth characterized by life, vigor, and joy. All right, this present age defined by death, decay, and destruction. And then the age to come, which is defined by everlasting life and peace in the presence of our Creator. So which, which age would you rather be wealthy in, is the question. Would you rather be a rich man in a city that's under siege? That's about to be sacked by vandals? Whose present existence is nasty, brutish, and short? Or would you rather be wealthy in a city that is prospering in peace and joy and love and unity? Moreover, we know that this this present age is makes life temporal it's short-lived in contrast to eternal life in the life to come right how good of an investment would it be for you to build a 10,000 foot square foot uh, sandcastle on the beaches of Malibu nice location right real estate's all about location 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 nice location huge sandcastle But you know the tide's coming in. Would that be a good investment or would it be a better investment to invest in a cheaper but more stable location 
further in from the shore. We should invest in something that will last. And the charge that is given to the rich in this present age, you'll notice, is to be humble. Or, instead in the negative, not to be haughty. This is a compound word, which literally means to be high-minded. To think highly of oneself. Right? Actually, Paul gives the same command in Romans twelve sixteen, where he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So all Christians are commanded to not be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. And so to be haughty is to not, to not associate with the lowly. To think that you're above them. Right? The high-minded man thinks, I am better than you because I make more money than you. The high-minded man thinks, you owe me deference because... I make more money than you do. You are less than me. Right? Have you ever noticed on the, on the highway that people drive differently according to the cars they drive? Right? Those driving luxury cars tend to be more pushy, more aggressive. In our culture, one's value is often associated with how much money they make. Right? We think, if a company really values me, they will offer me more money. And so those who make the most money are those who are the most valuable to the company. That would, that would almost seem axiomatic. Right? If you really value your quarterback, you're going to give them the most money on your football team. And so we assume the more money I make, the more valuable or important I am to society. And this is exactly why wealthy people tend to be more impatient, more demanding, more condescending because they think, again, those who make less money than them have an inherent obligation to serve them because they're more important than they are. And so the wealthy need to remember Jesus' warning in Luke twelve fifteen: Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So if our life does not consist, if our value does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, where is it found? Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying, not only is my, my life not found in the abundance of my possessions, the abundance of my possessions are trash compared to knowing Christ. As Paul told the Corinthians when instructing them about money, he said in 2 Corinthians 8-9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ was rich, but gave it all up and became poor, born in a stable. 
the king of kings, born in a lowly manger. He took on flesh, became poor, so that you might become rich. Not in this life. Some of us, as we've said, may be rich in this life. But Christ did not die to make us rich in this life, but to prepare us for the life to come. And that's why Paul told the Galatians, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul didn't boast in his possessions. He didn't boast in his knowledge. He didn't boast in his strength. He boasted in one thing. He boasted in Christ. Because all of his value, anything, the only thing that mattered, his real worth, was completely bound up in Christ. Again, he thought very differently than the way this world thinks. And therefore, he lived and spent his money very differently than the ways of this world. And so Paul says, you need to remind the rich, don't be haughty, remain humble. Remembering that your real worth isn't in your money. It's in Christ. Secondly, he says, remind them to keep their hope fixed upon God. He says not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now notice there the two words that he uses here. Hope and uncertainty. There's a play on words. Because the word hope means to have confidence in something. Certainty that something's going to happen. Right? We tend to use the word hope as kind of like a wishful thinking. The biblical idea of hope is your confidence. Where is your confidence found? But uncertainty obviously means having an absence of certainty. So Paul is saying that they should not set their certainty on that which is uncertain. Right? This is like the person who goes into a casino certain that they're going to make it rich. Right? We would consider some, that kind of person a fool. Right? It's foolish to be certain about something that is inherently uncertain. Right? Riches in this life by nature are uncertain. Homes can burn to the ground. Cars can be destroyed in one crash. Ponzi schemers can wreck your pensions. Right? And as people learn, when you go through a recession, all that money that you've saved up can, be, can disappear in a moment. One who is wealthy one minute can be left totally impoverished in another minute. We, we just celebrated what I'd say is America's favorite holiday, Black Friday, which is not to be confused with Black Tuesday. On October 29th, 1929, the United States stock market crashed, and that day was forever since known as Black Tuesday. And this is this stock market crash on Black Tuesday is what led to the Great Depression. When the stock prices started to slide, 
people started selling their stock as quickly as possible. And more and more people, through this panic selling, uh, brought the stock market to its lowest point ever in history. Billions of dollars were lost. Half of America's banks would eventually fail, and it would wipe out thousands of investors. Unemployment eventually reached 15 million people and 30% of America's workforce. Men were jumping out of buildings because of despair. All that they had in a moment lost. And there's a latent danger in having lots of money. But the danger in the Christian isn't that that money could be lost in an instant. The real danger for a Christian is that they would think that their security is bound up in that money. That is so uncertain. Rather than God, who is absolutely certain. And that's why Peter exhorts Christians to set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His second return. In His advent. Which we're celebrating. So does this mean that you shouldn't invest in retirement or life insurance policies? No, obviously not. We need to invest our money wisely. So it's good to invest wisely. It's good to invest in diversified stocks and if you have the money to do so. But the wisest investment really is to trust more and more in God who provides us with everything we need and He provides us with those things so that we might richly enjoy those things. Right? Notice the lavish emphasis here on the generosity of God. He richly provides all things to enjoy. Right? We need to remember again where this wealth that we have comes from. Or we like to think that our wealth comes from our ingenuity, our cleverness, our hard work, our discipline. I made my money. Right? We'd like to think that way. But the Bible would tell us very differently. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. If God didn't want you to be wealthy, you would not be wealthy. He gives you the ability to think the way you think. He gives you those customers. He gives you that insight, that inspiration, that wisdom. You have your economic circumstances only because the God of the universe has blessed you with such circumstances. Wealth is a gift that comes from God. Ecclesiastes 5.18, Solomon says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil 
This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. I mean, Paul, Solomon's point is he recognized where his wealth comes from. In fact, where everyone's wealth comes from. It comes from God. And why does God bless people in this life with wealth? Because he wants them to enjoy life. It's a blessing. But we need to remember he is the one who blesses us with such things. And this is why Paul says earlier, with food and clothing, we shall be content. Because we know he is the one that gives us our circumstances. And so if we're not content in our circumstances, what it's saying is we're not content in God. or We don't trust him. Or we're haughty and we assume that we deserve more than what he's actually given us. But God gives us everything we have, again, so that we might enjoy these things. And we can't miss this. Because there's a tendency, I think, in Christian, Christianity to think, you know, the, the, the poorer we are, the godlier we are. Or that God is just some cosmic killjoy that just wants us to be miserable. But that, that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, that's why uh, Paul rebukes those false teachers in Ephesus for their teaching of asceticism, who abstain from food and even from marriage. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. Right? The word enjoy speaks to taking pleasure in what God has given us. Right? The, the point is, God wants us to enjoy the things that we have. Just as parents, when you give your children a Christmas present or a birthday present, you want them to enjoy it. Right? You would not find pleasure if they're like, oh, a gift. Well, that's nice, but I don't deserve such a thing. And they just put it away in their closet and they never look at it again. That'd be heartbreaking to you. Because you bought it for them to enjoy it. Right? God, we need to remember, is the one who created beauty. He's the one that created music. And all the colors that we see, all the smells... Like he gives food its flavor. Spices, they're spice. He's the one that created sex. And he designed it for pleasure. Consider Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, which I'll paraphrase slightly. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. God wants spouses to enjoy one another. He designed marriage that way. By design. It's purposeful. But in order for us to enjoy the blessings the material blessings, the blessing of family, the blessing of friends, the blessing of church, in order for us to enjoy these things, we need to remember where they come from and guard ourselves from looking to the things to find satisfaction and not from the God who gives these things for our enjoyment. 
Right? We won't enjoy these blessings really unless our hearts are in the right place. Because once those things become the object of our affections, they will become a curse to us. See, more often than not, we do look to these things to bring us satisfaction and they fail miserably. Because we weren't designed to be satisfied by things. Our souls were not designed to be satisfied in temporal stuff that decays and is destroyed. Right? There is... We were designed to find satisfaction in one thing alone. And that's the God of this universe. Right? That's why Augustine said, You've made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. And then you just imagine wandering around in the, in the Sahara Desert for a day without water. And you're parched. Your, your tongue is sticking to your mouth. And you're, you're willing to do anything just to find water. And you see in the distance a Bedouin on a camel. And you come to him and you offer him a hundred dollars for, for some water. And he agrees. And he takes your money. And he takes out his canteen. And then he grabs a little eyedropper. And he places on your tongue two drops of water. And he says, sorry, that's all I can spare. And you would be enraged because you need that water to survive. Your, your body was made for water. And likewise, your soul demands more than anything that this world can offer. Droplets that will soon disappear are not enough. God alone can satisfy our deepest longings. And so the Bible is saying, don't run to that Bedouin with the eyedropper for satisfaction. Instead, turn to God, who this whole journey through the Sahara Desert has been following along with a truckload of ice-cold fresh mountain spring water that He wants to give to you if you would just turn around and ask Him for it. And once you receive all the water you need, He's going to want to provide for you. He's going to offer you a haagen ice cream bar or a Jamba smoothie. He's going to offer you clothes that you would need for your journey. Maybe an air conditioner or a fan. Or as I used to say in, in the joke, a, a car window so that you could roll it down. He wants to provide for you so that you would enjoy your journey. That's the kind of God we have. Seek God, not stuff. Seek God who can provide you with everything you need. And when you're satisfied in Him, truly satisfied in Him, He will give you everything else. So that we'll be a blessing and not a curse. If you seek joy outside of Him, though, you will perish. Right as Jesus said in Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you.
Thirdly, the rich need to do good. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. So notice they're supposed to be rich in good works, not just rich in their possessions. Right? They're to do good because they're Christians. They're followers of Christ whose very existence, whose very words are defined by goodness. And their identity is found in Him, not in their possessions. Because it's found in Him, they want to follow after Him. They want to be like Him. Right? Because their identity is found in Christ, they manifest their identity in doing the things that He would do. In following after Him. Their identity is not found in the abundance of their possessions but in their following Christ. Right? You, you, you don't identify a Christian by having sports cars or fashionable clothing. You identify them through good works. Right? The implication here is that Christians in Ephesus, they shouldn't be focused on trying to attain more and more. They just need to focus on doing good. Right? And that's as general a term as possible. What is it that God would have you do? What, what, what is His will? Do that. Focus on good works, not riches. Right? Their identity is found in their good works. Which is, therefore, worth asking ourselves, how would you identify a person who is rich in good works? Right? We know how to identify a rich person, usually. The kind of car they drive, how they dress. How they carry themselves. Maybe there's a bit of a swagger in their step. A condescending tone of voice. How would you identify, you can identify a wealthy person by external things. How would you identify a person who is rich in good works? And would somebody identify you as being rich in good works? Well, this is precisely how Tabitha was identified in Acts chapter 9. You recall that this is the woman who's also known as Dorcas, whom Peter raised from the dead. It says in 936, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. That's all it says about her. Full of good works and acts of charity. That was her, um, her character, her nature. That's what she was known by. And so Paul encourages the rich to do good, to, to be known for their kindness and acts of charity. But also, he encourages them to serve by being generous. He says, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Right? Because the rich are, are blessed with just an abundance of wealth and possessions, they should be particularly eager to give out of the abundance of what they have. Like if, they, if there's a need that somebody has, and they have the means to meet that need, they should be eager to do so. As the Apostle John writes, 
If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet then closes his heart against him, how can the love of God be in him? So if there's a need and we have the means to meet that need, our hearts should be compelled to do so. Or as the Apostle James says, don't. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warned and be filled, but does not give them the things they need for the body, what good is that? But those who do choose to do good and be generous, it says that those who do such acts are actually investing in the future, storing up treasure in the age to come. Right. One of the reasons people in this world pursue wealth is that so they can make more wealth and prepare themselves for the future. Right. We want to have security for the future. That's why we invest in insurance policies. But Paul is saying when you give generously to those in need, you are actually investing in wealth. In the life to come. Every act of generosity in this life is an investment in your future reward. As Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Right? He's making the same point. If you have money, invest it now in caring for people, meeting people's needs, being a blessing to others. So that you can prepare for an investment that will never be taken away from you. Paul's words to the wealthy continue as as Paul then gives two final commands to Timothy. And the commands given to Timothy, you'll notice, are linked with the verses that come before. And this is signaled by the verbiage that Paul uses. Where he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So we have two commands given to Timothy, namely to guard the good deposit and to avoid false teaching. Irreverent babble and contradictions. Right? Just as the rich are exhorted to invest their money wisely for eternal purposes, likewise, Timothy is told to guard the treasure that he already possesses in this present life. Guard it, Timothy. Invest it wisely. Of course, this again begs the question well, what is this great deposit? What is this great treasure? That he has been entrusted with to protect. Well, in short, as you'll see, I I think it's the word of God. Because Paul says a similar thing in the beginning of his letter in reference to the gospel. First Timothy 111. He says. The glorious gospel, this blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then in second Timothy 212, he talks about this pattern of sound words, which. Timothy has been entrusted with. Right? I'll, I'll read for chapter 2. Or 2 Timothy 1.12. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced 
that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Moreover, throughout this letter, we've, and in 2 Timothy and in Titus, you have these exhortations to guard the truth. Make sure you preach and teach it well. Rightly divide it. Rightly explain how it needs to be applied. Because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And the church is informed primarily through the Word of God. Guard the Word of God in order to guard the church. Moreover, the following phrase also suggests that he has the Word of God in mind because he's supposed to guard the investment that he's received from irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And this is the second command that Timothy receives. Avoid irreverent babble. It is very similar to how Paul began the letter. He ends it like he began it. Chapter 119, or sorry, one, chapter 1-1, one, one, sorry, 1-3, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine in order to devote themselves to endless myths, genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And you'll recall that in verse 19, he goes on to note two people who have wandered from the faith, made shipwreck of their faith, namely Hymenaeus and Alexander. Right, so guard the good deposit from irreverent babble, contradictions, false teachers. Right, and this exhortation to guard is massively significant from a biblical theological perspective. In fact, the word guard is first given to Adam in the garden. Adam was asked to do two things. To serve in the garden. It's actually the same word for worship or minister. It can be translated worship. He needs to serve in the garden and he needs to keep or guard the garden. Which, of course, he didn't do. And thus sin came into the world. The same words are then used to describe the work of the Levites in regard to the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 3, beginning of verse 5, it says this. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. And they serve at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they serve at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. And notice this. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. 
by implication, by the Levites. They were to guard the tabernacle. And if anybody transgressed, anybody came into the region of the tabernacle that wasn't supposed to be there, they were to be killed. That was the Levite's job. They were to guard the tabernacle. In fact, the same responsibility is given to the cherubim. After Adam fell and was cast out of the garden with Eve, God placed cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden so that no one would get at the tree of life. Genesis 3.24 And so in the same way, Timothy is to guard the church, to guard the Word of God from false teachers, lest the pillar and support of the truth be destroyed. And he used to use the same vigilance that the Levites kept guard over the tabernacle and the temple, in which the cherubim kept guard over the garden. But of course, in order for Timothy to do this effectively, he needs God's grace. And that's why Paul concludes, grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we need your grace. Because it is so easy to let false teaching creep into our own thinking. Let alone into our church. And into the church as a whole. Lord, so I pray that you would continue to give us discernment to rightly understand your word, to live according to your word, and to expose falsehood. Lord, I pray particularly that you would give me grace to lead this church effectively and anyone else whom you call into leadership in this body. We ask all these things in Christ's name.